Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 28. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word and we ask that your spirit be with us this morning so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. The influential preacher and teacher, Dr. Thomas Long, begins his book, The Senses of Preaching, with a story about taking his children and a few of their friends to New York City to do some Christmas shopping. As he lets the kids loose, he notices a sidewalk preacher attempting to evangelize the passing crowds. And I'll allow Dr. Long's words to set the scene for you. He writes, His appearance is about what one would have anticipated. His eyes were searching wildly his urgent voice screeching through a distorted five-watt amplifier, his hands beckoning to the crowds which passed his asphalt pulpit. His message was not entirely lucid, 
But even in its disconnections, you could feel him trying to get his words around a text. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Most people were, of course, passing him by. Some stopped for a brief and curious stare. I noticed that even the hired Santa Claus, positioned several feet down the pavement, paused to listen every now and then. A good many people smiled benevolently as they walked by. A few laughed out loud, and one person asked him what he was on, even though it was not yet the third hour. The preacher just kept saying, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now, the reason that Dr. Long introduces this story is not necessarily to pass judgment on street preaching. Instead, it's to introduce a concept universal, not just to preaching, but to all of Christian witness. And this concept is the same one that Paul starts to introduce in our reading this morning from Colossians. The street preacher on those New York City streets stands in for every Christian who's placed under the judgment of, their wor of the world for their commitment to Christ. Dr. Long states, for most who passed by, it was a swift trial. His testimony was deemed irrelevant, or at best, circumstantial. Mainly, he was laughed out of court. But this trial of public opinion is not the one that matters, and so Dr. Long continues, two public trials are going on simultaneously. In one, the powers and principalities have placed us all on trial, a never terminating trial of endless appeals. Will we measure up? Can we get our act together? However, hidden from view, another trial is going on. And in this trial, the powers and principalities themselves have been placed on trial by God. They do not see the courtroom, are not even aware the trial is going on, but they are on trial nonetheless. And when the guilty verdict in this trial is pronounced upon the powers, all those who have been accused in the first trial are set free. Which brings us back to Paul. Next week, we'll look more closely at this power struggle between the powers and principalities and the kingdom of God. But before we get there, we need to understand who Jesus Christ is, how his nature affects our standing in the kingdom, and what gives him the authority to pass this final judgment. So Paul sets the stage by borrowing verses 15 through 20 from a hymn that speaks about Christ's nature. From this hymn, we learn a number of things. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the origin of all creation, the creator of all powers and authorities, that which holds all things together, the head of the church, the firstborn of the dead, the dwelling place of the fullness of God, and the source of reconciliation between all things and God. All of which is to say, Jesus Christ has been with God from the beginning of time and will be with God until the end of time. Jesus, therefore, was involved in the creation of all things, including the power wielded by rulers or authorities of any kind. Therefore, Jesus has authority over the authorities and rulership over rulers. 
Therefore, when lesser authorities, whether they're humans or spirits, cast a judgment, their judgment is subject to appeal by Christ. And finally, Christ has already rendered his verdict in these appeals through his death upon the cross. Jesus' final judgment is a judgment of peace and reconciliation for anyone who seeks an appeal through him. And I should offer a brief word of caution here. Even though we often use legal-sounding arguments, as I've just done to describe the act of Jesus' atonement upon the cross, no metaphor for what Jesus did is perfect. So I don't want us to get too caught up in the calculus of guilt and non-guilt that we miss the point that Paul is making here. The authorities of this world do not have the final say on our lives. The ultimate power rests in Christ Jesus, who is faithful to us so long as we are faithful to him. So what does that mean for us to be faithful to Christ? When Paul tells us that we have to continue steadfast in faith, he uses the Greek word pistis, meaning loyalty or trust. And these concepts, loyalty and trust, these are much more concrete than faith. Faith is the kind of word that we say all the time. But then when we're put to the test and we're asked to define it, we have to pause for a minute to think about what we're saying. But loyalty, trust, these are the kinds of words that we can feel deep down in our bones. These are the kinds of words that instantly call to mind examples from real life. We know what it is to have trust in a close family member or a friend. We know that in our times of distress, we can turn to them in confidence and not be betrayed or deceived. We know what it is to be loyal to any number of forces in our life, our family, our friends, our church, our community, our nation. Loyalty inspires us to stick with someone or something through the thick and the thin. As I was thinking about this sermon, the example that came to mind for me was the Michigan baseball team. As they kept advancing through the College World Series this year, fans came crawling out of the woodwork to cheer them on until things got tough. After Michigan exceeded everyone's expectations to make it to the finals of the College World Series, the tune from their new supporters suddenly changed when they dropped the second game in the series. And then, when they lost the series in the third game, all these new fans disappeared as suddenly as they had first appeared. But the loyal fans the ones who support them no matter what, were there to celebrate their return to Ann Arbor. And this is the word that Paul offers to the Colossians. If we remain loyal to Christ, then he will present us holy, blameless, and irreproachable. We're not going to skate by being fair-weather fans. If we jump ship the first moment that we see trouble on the horizon then we're showing our true colors to Jesus. But the flip side of that is that Jesus doesn't ask for perfection from us either. 
Jesus is just asking us to make an effort. Jesus doesn't tell us that we have to fix the world on our own, but if we yearn for justice and holiness, then we will be accounted as just and holy in his final judgment. And for all of the high-minded rhetoric of this passage in Paul's letter, he knows what it means firsthand to remain loyal to Christ when the going is tough. The traditional understanding of this letter is that it's written from prison, like many of Paul's letters. And Paul often writes of the physical suffering that he endures for the sake of the gospel. Today we see him write, In my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In other words, Paul does not ask anything more of us than he's willing to endure himself, or than Christ was willing to endure either. And here's the so what that comes out of all this talk about the nature of Christ, about the order of creation, about ideals like loyalty and trust. No matter how the world judges you, the final judgment rests with Christ. And we all know the judgments that the world has to offer. Too fat or too skinny, too old or too young, too lazy or too much of a workaholic, too soft-spoken or too controlling, too progressive or too conservative, too rich or too poor, too much of a goody-two-shoes or too much of a troublemaker, and so on and so on and so on. It's an impossible task to meet the judgment of the world. But the good news is we don't have to sweat it. Our judgment rests in the one who sits above all other judgments. Our loyalty is in the one who has already said, we are loved, we are enough. And all we have to do is try. Try to love more, try to live more justly, try to be more patient, more caring, more gentle, more kind. And in return, Christ will repay our loyalty with his own. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Loving God, free us from the anxieties of this world. Remind us that you are the one who sits in judgment and that your judgment is good. Reckon us as righteous even though we stumble. Grant us the strength to get back up and run the race. Amen.